In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, James K.A. Smith, always have to wonder about those with two middle names, uh, who's a professor at Calvin College, writes these words, to be human is to desire the kingdom, some version of the kingdom, which is the aim of our quest. Every one of us is on a kind of Arthurian quest for the Holy Grail, that hoped for, longed for, dreamed of picture of the good life that we pursue without ceasing. Many people have said the same thing in lots of different ways. The reality is, is that we are all creatures of love who are ultimately pursuing um, our vision of the kingdom, our vision of the good life. And it's this fact that this is the way that we are wired as human beings, the way God made us, that ensures that, that Jesus, and we've been taking a look, an extended look at Jesus through the Gospel of Luke here over the last month and a half or so, um, in a series we're calling The Center to get back to the center of our faith. It ensures that, that, that Jesus will be met with resistance. That Jesus in his ministry and his claims and in his ongoing presence and reality as the exalted Lord at the Father's side will be met with conflict and resistance by people. And the reason for this is because Jesus himself has a vision of the good life. Jesus has a vision of of the kingdom. Jesus has a vision of human flourishing. And it's very Jesus-centered, and it's very all-encompassing, and it's very cross-shaped. It's very love-filled, it has power and authority, and it calls, and he calls us to something. And as we saw last week, he calls us really to leave everything, to abandon everything, and to cling to him and to pursue him in this new way. Well, the fact is, is that because of Jesus' vision for the kingdom, um, and the fact that we have our own vision, these two things, and Jesus is all-encompassing, there will be a conflict there will be a resistance that's encountered at some level. And all of us would experience this at one level or another, whether you claim to follow Jesus right now and have given your life over to him, or if you're just seeking, uh, at this point, asking questions about who he is and what this whole Christian thing is all about. All of us, at some point or another, maybe even daily, will have these moments of resistance to Jesus. The key question that we get really out of the scriptures from cover to cover is, Uh, Will we forsake our visions of the kingdom and embrace God's? Or will we cling cling to ours and resist him? And I guess one question we could ask was, well, why should we we listen to Jesus anyway? Why, Why should we really care about what he has to say about this subject? The conflict that Jesus enters into with all of humanity is played out for us in the Gospel of Luke with a few particular groups of people. And those people are introduced by Luke in the Gospel in chapter 5 for the first time in verse 17. Luke says, On on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. We get this introduction here to the Pharisees. We knew there was conflict because in Luke 4... Um, in Nazareth, in his hometown, Jesus 
said some cryptic things and, and uh, they wanted to kill him and they took him out to throw him off a cliff and he walked through their midst. So it's not the first time we've seen conflict with Jesus' ministry, but it's the first time we get this main group introduced to Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? Uh, they've, they've been dragged through the mud a lot um, over the last hundred years or so, certainly in biblical scholarship. Um, they were a special interest group in, in the nation of Israel, so to speak. Um, that would have been like you could imagine a group gathering on the mall in Washington, D.C. with signs and and slogans, um, pressuring the democracy of America to go a certain direction. This is who the Pharisees were. They were a pressure group inside the nation of Israel. They weren't weren't official. Um, They didn't have any names on ballots, so to speak, but they were a pressure group. In in many ways, the Tea Party movement uh, of the last year could be a good modern-day example. If somebody cringed, somebody smiled, I don't know what to say. Um, but they're not official. They don't have a name on the ballot. They're not looking, you know, they, at least at this point, they're, they're just this kind of loose conglomeration of people with a similar interest to want small government and to hold Washington accountable and whatever else they say. And, uh, and this is, in a sense, and, and they're putting pressure in the American system. This is what the Pharisees are in first century Israel. They have a vision for the way that Israel should be Israel, and they're pursuing that with great zeal and passion. And they arrive on the scene here in, uh, in, in some town where Jesus is teaching. Now, why in the world would they come to see this young Galilean prophet doing what he does? It's because they had a competing vision. They had a different picture of what the kingdom was going to look like or how, particularly, how it would come about. You see, everybody in Israel was waiting for the time when God would do his final great work, when God would uh, free his people from bondage, rescue them from enemy oppression, when he would forgive their sins and bring them back into a place of blessing, of shalom, and peace, when God would return ultimately to Zion, to Jerusalem, to reign and to rule over his people. They were waiting for this day to come. But the Pharisees had a very different way of thinking that this would come about than what they heard about in this young prophet who was gaining attention and notice um, up in the north. So they came from Galilee, they came from Judea down in the southern part of Palestine, and they also came from Jerusalem. So this was a pretty potent delegation that had been sent to check out Jesus. When somebody like Jesus is announcing the end of chapter 4, the good news of the kingdom, and going around preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and this is what the Pharisees are all about too, is the kingdom of God. And they see him doing it in all the wrong ways. They want to come and see what's going on. There's a conflict here. Their way of seeing the kingdom of God come about was through the intensification of the observance of the Jewish law. Um, Things like Sabbath, things like purity laws, food laws, these things, as they intensify, they, their, their way of, of, in a sense, awakening their father to come and return and restore the kingdom was to intensify this, this observance of Jewish law. And at times, groups of the Pharisees, certainly not all of them, you can't say the Pharisees and mean one thing. There was a, quite a variety in, in the first century. But groups of them would get even militant and think that in order for the kingdom to truly come, we have to spark it by our own zeal and, milit- and, and militant violent resistance to the enemy, which is Rome. So here comes this Galilean prophet, and they've certainly probably heard something of his message. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. They've heard of his uh, spending time with the wrong kinds of people. 
and they want to come and, and check it out for themselves. And here's what they see in this great story that many of you know from Luke 5. The first thing that they see is these faith-filled people, these faith-filled friends of the paralytic. This other approach to coming to Jesus. There's this one approach of taking the, 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 the route of skepticism, um, the route of competition, the route of rivalry. And then contrasting with that approach of the Pharisees is this approach of the friends of the paralytic. No obstacle is too great. No embarrassment is too significant. But there's a, there's a, there's a deep yearning to come before this man Jesus and to bring their friend who wasn't an insider, who wasn't a Pharisee, who, who wasn't part of the, the, the well-to-do of his day, but was an outcast by virtue of being a paralytic, expelled most likely even from his home, but their friend that they wanted to see restored. And so no obstacle, no embarrassment. They do everything that they can to get this man before Jesus. And so they climb around the back of the house because there's a crowd in the way. They can't get to him and they let him down through the roof into the midst right before Jesus to get their friend the attention that they want him to have from Jesus. And in response to this faith that Jesus sees in verse 20, Jesus declares the forgiveness of sins. Verse 20, man or friend, your sins are forgiven you. This is what the Pharisees are watching, these faith-filled people. And faith, in this sense, at this point in Luke's gospel, in general means a basic positive response to the visitation of God. There is an openness. There's a yearning to be there. There's not a resistance. There's not a closed-down, clenched thing. There's an openness. There's a going forward, a, a positive response to God's initiative in Jesus. And Jesus declares these, this man's sins to be forgiven. That's not what we might have expected. But in reality, part of the kingdom declaration, part of the kingdom announcement that Jesus was to make, and part of the hope of the nation of Israel, when God would do his final great climactic work of restoring his kingdom, was that there would be a forgiveness of sins. There would be a, a return from exile. And exile, bondage and slavery, oppression under the Roman rule, was a punishment, an ongoing reminder that their sins had not yet finally been forgiven. So this great work that God was going to do would, would include this announcement of forgiveness. So in this exchange between Jesus and the paralytic, it's not just an exchange of, of, of one individual's sin being forgiven, but it has a much deeper resonating significance, echoing, kind of reverberating through the whole hope of Israel that God is actually moving to do the final work that he's promised to do. And with this announcement of the kingdom comes this glorious announcement of the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is taking this up as the one who is announcing the kingdom. There's outrage in response. Verse 21, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why are they so outraged that Jesus would announce the forgiveness of sins? 
In so doing, Jesus subverts and goes around the way that God had had ordained, sovereignly ordained, for sins to be forgiven for the nation of Israel. They had a temple. They had a sacrificial system. They had great feasts. And they ultimately had the Day of Atonement. And they had official representatives of God to pronounce forgiveness of sins to the people. Especially on that one day a year, the Day of Atonement. In other words, what this would be like, it'd be like you going down to Copley Square and going up to a street vendor and getting a passport as a United States citizen. Or maybe something that connects closer to home to some of you, it it would be like you going to a visiting lecturer at your university and be giving a a diploma with the highest marks. It subverts subverts the, the, the existing system and it goes around the way that God has set it up to work. And they say, you can't do this. Only God can do this. Only God can forgive sins. Now notice Jesus' response. He, he doesn't actually uh, query with their statement. He doesn't come back and deny them. And his, his silence on that point is an implicit agreement. But he says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? The one can be affirmed or, or disproved or proved. The other, the internal work, um, is left unprovable in some ways. So Jesus is saying, so, so which is easier? It's not that he's saying that it's, it's any less difficult to forgive the sins of a man. But it's that one is this visible impossibility that you can see and that you can verify right before you. And so what Jesus says, he says, which is easier? And then he goes on and says, and here, so that, but that you, know, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Again, first century context for just a moment. This Son of Man figure from Daniel 7, where the kingdom is restored to Israel. It's a kingdom renewal passage. In parts of Judaism in the first century, this Son of Man passage in Daniel 7 had developed a messianic interpretation where the the one like a son of man was was actually God's appointed representative. God's God's king, God's God's, uh, rightful representative to come and restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus takes this this thing, maybe not everybody in this um, that that was hearing this, certainly the Pharisees would have understood some of what he's implying, but but maybe not everybody would have, but, but Jesus is picking up this part of his first century context and saying, I have authority to do what I've just done by referring to himself as the Son of Man. And he heals the paralytic. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. The paralytic restored, returned from his own personal exile. Sins forgiven, paralysis undone, glorifies God and returns home.
restored, returned, renewed. And the people's response, verse 26, amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary, paradoxos, paradox, amazing, unexpected things today. Why should we listen to Jesus' vision of the kingdom? This text from Luke's gospel makes the point extremely clear that it's because Jesus has authority. Jesus is God's agent. Certainly from our perspective, looking back and understanding that Jesus himself was the second person of the Trinity, we can affirm this. But certainly, even within this first century context, those who encounter Jesus know that they've they've encountered God in his power. And Luke will go on in his gospel to make this more and more clear. But Jesus has this authority from God, from our maker, from the one who made you, from the one who knows you, from the one who wired you in a certain way. Jesus has this authority. And Jesus not only has authority, but the other great point from this text is that Jesus has great power, which we've looked at in the last couple of weeks as well. And he has the power and the authority to handle and to deal with the needs that we have. Does your vision of the kingdom have that? Does it include in some ways dealing with the most basic problem that each one of us has as a human being? Which is this fundamental brokenness? This reality that we've missed the mark of who we were made to be? And in so doing, haven't only missed the fullness of human life, but have offended the maker, our maker, have offended our God. Does the vision of the kingdom that the world offers us today address that? Does, does, does accumulating all kinds of toys and trinkets and wealth or accumulating all kinds of knowledge or accumulating all kinds of power, does it address this issue? Is there a power in those visions that can actually reach into the human heart and make a change? Most other visions of the kingdom have us as the hero. We're the key protagonist in the story. Most other, most other visions of the kingdom depend upon our power and our authority to go out and get the good life. But the reality is, is that we're all like the paralytic in the story. We're all helpless we're all fundamentally unable to live life as it was meant to be lived. Our legs are broken and we can't walk. The good news of the kingdom that Jesus brings is that that God in Christ has dealt with that fundamental brokenness. God in Christ is setting people free from that basic problem that needs addressing in our lives. You might experience that problem in in, in all kinds of different ways. It 
it might be that sin or that, that doing life on your own terms has its grip upon you even right now, even tonight. And it's God alone who has the power to come in and to break that in us, to pronounce forgiveness and to set us free, to restore us, to renew us, to remake us, and to send us out whole again, free again, alive again. So this is why we should listen to Jesus. The one who has authority and the one who has power to deal with our deepest issue, our deepest problem. And he does it in an extraordinary way. As we come to the table, we celebrate again this this picture of God pouring out his life for his people. Of Jesus breaking his own body of Jesus, the suffering servant, bearing upon himself the sins of us all and welcoming us, the outsiders, the broken ones, to feast with him at his table, to be renewed and strengthened by him and to go forward and to live life as it was meant to be lived to the glory of God. Amen.